So material poverty is much easier to solve. If you're hungry, I can give you a sandwich. If you're homeless, I can give you a home. Spiritual poverty is much, much harder. It's that long loneliness of homelessness that you never know when it's going to end, where you feel unwanted, unloved, like you're nobody to nobody. And that takes a lot more to fix, if it can be fixed. Welcome to Discover More Podcast, a community for seekers of curiosity and mental health insights. I am your host, Benoit Kim, a trilingual Korean-American veteran and former policymaker. I became a clinician after witnessing the non-negotiable of mental health and nuanced perspectives in our everyday life. I intend to connect and dissect the intricacies of mental health by talking to the most fascinating humans I can possibly find. Congratulations on choosing curiosity over complacency. Let's get this started. This week's guest is Brett Feldman. Brett is the director and co-founder of the Street Medicine Division at Keck School of Medicine. Concurrently, Brett also serves as the vice chair of the Street Medicine Institute and is a clinical assistant professor of family medicine. His work has been featured in the Washington Post, LA Times, PBS, CNN, and TED Talk. Wow, that's a long list. Most importantly, though, he's a Philadelphian and a lover of a good old Philly cheesesteak like myself. He has practiced street medicine in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and Los Angeles, California for over 16 years. With his incredible work, Brad has been awarded with the Pennsylvania Society of Physician Assistants Humanitarian of the Year Award, Lehigh Valley Healthcare Hero Award, and more. Brad has published two peer-reviewed articles which focus on the prevalence of homelessness and can be found on PubMed. Brett, I'm so excited to learn more about the impactful work that you do with homelessness and how you became the fittest and the guest with the best physique I've come across from across the screen. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I feel like Brett with that introductions and for the viewers and of course, listeners won't be able to see your physique, but uh, (laughs) what does your morning routine look like? You know, does your morning routine involve gym? Are you more of a morning workout person or after? Yeah. Definitely morning because, um, and I have been since I was in high school. So I'm usually up at five and into the gym around 5.30. Found that's the best way to start the day. I get an extra meal in too if I get up early. So that's good. Yeah. When non-morning workout people ask morning workout person like we are, they don't understand and we can explain a residual energy all we want. But they just don't understand it, right? But for those who understand it, it's honestly the best thing for the, it actually empowers and makes the rest of your day easier, uh, even though it's very counterintuitive. So I intentionally wanted to start off on a very chill note because today's conversations, many of the vast conversations we'll hit on is very heavy, right? Especially with your background in stream medicine, your focal, your bread and butter with your service, with who you want to serve the most, with one of the most marginalized and vulnerable populations of homelessness. And I feel like a lot of mainstream media tends to portray homelessness as an ill of the society, where there is no hope in sight, there's no solution, there's nothing we could do. It's just an ill, right? Why do you, and what is this fervor? Where is this unwavering commitment for you come from related to this particular uh, population? I mean, the way that you set it up, homelessness is an ill. Um, and, and homelessness really is just a prism that has reflected all the other systemic issues in society. 
But in order to, you know, when you ask, well, what are the solutions? The first solution is to be able to separate homelessness from the person experiencing homelessness, to learn to love the person and hate the experience of homelessness. Um, and until we're willing to do that, we won't be able to humanize in our minds. They're already human. We can't give that to them. But in our minds, those people and being part of our community, um, or we can flip the script from the not in my backyard, which, you know, we probably all experienced. We don't want those people in our backyard to we don't want homelessness in our backyard, um, where we learn to love the people and make sure that they feel included in our community. Yeah. So speaking of not in my backyard mentality, right, according to the Homeless Service Authority in 2020, the count was about 67,000 individuals experiencing homelessness in Los Angeles. And that's, of course, an outdated count. So what do you say to those people who are beholding and clinging on to this very narrowed, not in my backyard mentality saying that, oh, if I don't see them, the problem does not exist. What do you say to those people that homelessness is not an issue that we can address by just ignoring it? Yeah, well, you have to start out with with the idea of, you know, you really think of things like oppression and, and oppressive symptoms and or systems and people experiencing homelessness are definitely oppressed. I mean, you and I can go in to any restaurant we want to get served and they walk in anywhere and get shoot out somewhere. There are many, many places that they're not welcome. And so they become dehumanized in, in our minds. But in dehumanizing them, we also dehumanize ourselves by essentially stripping what makes us most human. And that's the ability to have love and compassion. So the first thing to do to restore both of our humanities, because we've lost it, is it takes an act of love and belongingness for both of us to say that we both have a place in this community. So that needs to happen first. So then after that, we have to examine what our values are. Um, and if our values is, you know, we would rather have really fancy parks with pretty flowers and want to throw out the people with the trash, then that's what we would choose at that point. And those are not decisions that I can make for people, but it's a question that they have to ask themselves, which is more valuable to them. Is it the people who are experiencing that long loneliness of poverty? Or is it the pretty flowers in the park? And then if you choose the people, then the rest of the solution comes from that. If you choose, you know, some of those other things, then you'll get what we've already, what we've always gotten. Yeah, I think by doing the same thing we've always been, it's a pretty clear map for disasters, right? Because whatever we've been doing is clearly not working. That's why we're dealing with the societal issues at large. Um, I sense a theme of business of convincing. What I mean by that is I, I'm a huge advocate for psychedelic medicine, right? That's the field I'm going into as a clinician myself. And the science is very clear. And one thing that COVID taught us is that feelings don't care about facts. It's not really about the science or the empirical data, right? It's about what people feel. So what are some of the effective strategies that you've done in your line of work when you're facing people who have this not in my backyard mentality or this resistance saying that, no, 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 
they're not humans. They don't count, right? They're not part of this uh, society. They don't contribute. They don't pay taxes. Uh, what are some of the more effective strategies you have used? Because as you know, probably more than anyone, that convincing does not always work. Yeah. So I think people, some people think with their heads, some people think with their hearts. And in convincing, your job is to connect the two. You know, for the people that think with their heads, then you're more likely to to come to them with certain facts and figures um, in order to make a, a convincing argument. And so, for example, if I'm speaking to uh, hospital administration on why they need to care about people experiencing homelessness who are either costing them so much money because they're in and out of the EDs and the hospital, um, or they're not accessing care at all and dying on the streets, um, then you come to them with facts and figures on high readmission rates, high length of stays, or maybe they care about you know people dying um, in their 40s and 50s. And so that's how you would speak to them. And then other people just respond to human suffering and the desire to relieve suffering. So it really comes down to our motivations in street medicine. And I found that street medicine providers, because we all share these similarities and it's not, of course, not unique to street medicine providers, but I've found three things that motivate us. Number one is a sense of duty where we say, you know, I'm a doctor, I'm a PA, I'm a nurse, I'm a medical professional, and my job is to is to heal people who are sick. And so the people experiencing, especially unsheltered homelessness, who are much sicker than those who are sheltered, they say, that's it, I'm going to them, I'm, I'm going to serve them. Others are motivated by a sense of justice, where they see that they that this grave injustice has been done to them, and they want to right that wrong. And then the third one is this profound sense of love, where they see that people are suffering and they want to relieve that suffering. And I think we all have elements of those three in us with, you know, different proportions. You know, like for me, I'm much more motivated by love. It wasn't always that way. That has shifted in my career. Um, but other people have their own motivations. Let's just stay on that train real quick. Uh, what do you mean by it has shifted in your career? So I think when I started out, I was much more motivated by duty, where, um, you know, I, I witnessed a lot of people who were super sick on the street, that there was really nowhere for them to get care. And they weren't able to access brick and mortar facilities. So things like cancer or heart disease were just left untreated and they died on the street. And I remember, um, you know, th this was in Allentown and they were not doing autopsies on people experiencing homelessness because there was no family to report it back to. So a lot of folks died with no name and no cause of death. Um, and so where it started with me just being like, we have to treat everyone's illnesses. Let's go do that. They're really sick. Spending time with them and getting to know them, um, found out that they were really beautiful people and um, some of the most authentic and genuine people that I knew. Some of them became my some of my greatest teachers. And to think that some of them died without a name, I think shifted to what motivated me over my career. Yeah, thanks for sharing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I feel like 
we can gain experiences and exposure to reading through proxies, through vicariously, through other stories. But the best way is probably through direct exposure by actually having this conversation with them, you know, stripping away the mask and prejudices and biases of what we think they are or what we perceive them as, but just talking human to human, which I know is like the whole ethos and how the mission statements and philosophy hall street medicine team operates. Um, so for some more context for the listeners, Brett, uh, what is street medicine and why do you think it's a really important but little known work? Because until I read that LA Times article by you in 2020, I didn't even know what street medicine was. And I'm pretty deep into the whole clinical field and I also subscribe to love over fear, right? So what is street medicine and why is it a really important topic? Yeah. So just, you know, very brief for the the listener, street medicine is the delivery of healthcare to people experiencing unsheltered homelessness in their environment. So um, the whole idea is that people experiencing unsheltered homelessness just can't access healthcare the way the rest of us do. So we go to them in a very assertive way with the goal of first delivering a tender love, as you said. And then after that, the same quality of healthcare on the street that you would expect in a brick and mortar clinic. And we know that healthcare is much more than the doctor's visit. So we dispense medications, draw labs, we can do ultrasound on the street, EKGs on the street. We do it through with a pickup truck and backpacks. And so we, we go through walking rounds. The motto is to go to the people, to suspend our reality and meet them in their reality where they feel most comfortable. And so it is important to differentiate street medicine from mobile medicine or RV medicine, which is great. And there's many people who are served through that way. But the difference is obviously visual. We're on the street in the encampment there in an RV, but also philosophical, where we want to intentionally flip the power dynamic in their favor, where they feel most comfortable. And even if we drive in proximity to them, and this was a lesson I learned very early, we're still taking them out of their environment and bringing them into ours, where we've probably even licensed. And that flips that power dynamic back in our favor, which is not where we want it. Yeah, I want to talk more about the philosophy, right? So from when I watched your TED Talk in May 2020, you talked about radical humility. You talked about this tactic that you guys use called servant position, right? So can you tell me more about the philosophy of street medicine since you are the co-founder and director of street medicine division at USC? And why do you think this power dynamic really matters? But from this side of the table, I feel like servant positions and this very humble, radically humble philosophy is probably one of the driving success factors for you guys, right? Yeah, I think it is. And of course, we all define success differently. But um, so what, what you're referring to is that when we meet people in an encampment, we all bend down in the servant's position. So we're were squatted down with the patient bit given the position of authority. So a lot of times you might hear people say, get, get to eye level and they do that. Uh, but we don't even think that's enough. We want to be below eye level. Um, so that they are truly given a position of authority. So we talk about, you know, there's all this talk about patient centered care. And what I think has happened to patient centered care is I pictured, I pictured this patient in a hole and we just built the system up so high around them. Yes, they're at the center swallowed by the system. We can't even find them anymore. And so we want to have patient-led care. And so we elevate them above that of the system. 
um, and let them lead us to whatever their their goals are, which gets us really to our like foundational values. Um, and so love, but not not a you know a warm fuzzy love. It's really a love with grit. It's a love that um, you know stays with them on a bus while they're being verbally harassed and abused, and you sit with them as friends. For me, or for you know some other people, it might be filling out that housing application for the sixth time because they keep losing it. Um, or you know, for me, it might be going into the hospital after the treatment plan has quote unquote failed for the sixth time, and the inpatient team says it's failed. You know, they'll say, you know, Brett, you have such a great pro, you do such great work. Give up on this one. Go help, you know, somebody else. But we know if we give up on them, there's nobody after that. And so we get ridiculed as if we don't know what we're doing. We don't know the decision we made. We're just being manipulated by the patient. We know what decision we've made. Um, and then the second value is what we call authentic solidarity. And there's been lots of statements of solidarity and gestures of solidarity. But authentic solidarity is really the willingness to be able to share in the suffering of somebody else with joy. And so there are ways that we go about our day to intentionally share in their suffering in the hopes that it, we will relieve some of it. Um, and one of the ways that, that we do that, at least from my standpoint as the director of the program, is that street medicine in the country is not really reimbursable through medical insurance, even though the patients are insured, it just became reimbursable in California in December. Even though it might be reimbursable, it's not sustainable. And so we're involved in the hustle just as much as our patients are involved in the hustle, figuring out how we will survive from one moment to the next. And we've made progress in that way, but um, it's not what, what other uh, physician practices and medical practices are going through. Yeah, there's a lot there. And once again, I sense a very consistent and strong thread of love, right? Whether it's compassion, whether it's humility, whether it's eye level isn't enough, let's get below the eye level, right? I sense a very strong theme of love, um, which is how we started this interview. So on that end, let's stay on this train. As a clinician myself, when I'm in the sessions with patients or clients, or when I used to be a teacher, I taught middle school inner city Philadelphia through a Teach for America. I often thought, oh, I'm the expert, so I'm going to teach them more. But in reality, in actuality, I learned more about life from my students or recently from my patients and clients. So for you, Brett, uh, what has your patients and what has your line of work taught you about love? Well, they taught me the meaning, to be honest with you. One of our first patients, his name is Craig, and I think he, he really demonstrated it better than anybody that I've seen. Um, we met him through the consult service in the hospital. He came in with abdominal pain and just had metastatic cancer everywhere. Um, he was exactly 50, which is the age you would get your colonoscopy. He lived in a drainage pipe for three years prior to us meeting him. And he, you know, it was terminal. He did not want anything done. He didn't want chemo or radiation. He just wanted to be made comfortable. But at that moment, he really wasn't requiring anything. He had pain, which we needed to, to control, but that was it. And, uh, but we couldn't bear to see him discharged back to the drainage pipe. And so I made a deal with the inpatient hospice unit. And to get into the inpatient hospice unit, you need to be expected to die within a week or so. 
and and have something active for them to do, whether it be pain management, respiratory control, something for them to do. But they said he could come and even though it would be a few months, he could also come and go and visit his friends and, and enjoy what was left of his life. And so I walked into the room triumphantly with this great deal that I made and I told him all about it. And he was like, I'm not going. I'm like, what do you mean you're not going? It's a great thing. Come and go. They give you your food. And he said, no. You said that people in there are going to, are expected to die within a week. That means they need the bed more than I do. And I'll go back out to my drainage pipe. And it occurred to me that in the midst of his suffering, just getting that diagnosis and still facing living in a drainage pipe, he recognized somebody else's suffering as greater than his own. And he went back outside. Eventually, he did need inpatient hospice and eventually died there um, months later. But um, so I think about him often and and uh, that, you know, great act of love is something that we are constantly trying to emulate and fall short of. That's probably one of the most incredible stories. I got goosebumps and chills on this side. And I'm a Christian by trait. I'm both religious and spiritual. But in the Bible text, whether you believe it or not, there's a lot of ancient stories about the poor tends to be more generous than the rich, right? And that theme is ubiquitous across different culture, different scriptures, whether it's Islam or not. And I also tend to look at in my own life where people who don't have as much resources tend to be more generous than those who do. And of course, it's a blanket generalization. Um, but that hits me really hard because I was like, wow, I can't even imagine for someone who's dealing with acute and chronic pain who still value and prioritize someone else above their own suffering, which is pretty crazy. So in this sense, Brad, you talked about sense of justice earlier, right? In terms of the sense of duty, sense of justice. A lot of people that might be listening, depending on their own level of exposure and biases, they might say to themselves, and this is a very common narrative in the mainstream media like oh homeless people are lazy there is no it's not it's not a social justice issue because it's self-inflicted they brought homelessness onto themselves it's because they're lazy they view homelessness many view homelessness as a moral issue what would you say given the story you just said about craig who was dealing with his life-threatening condition himself yet he was able to see the humanity in others and prioritize love over his own fear. Any thoughts? I would say they probably haven't met too many homeless folks, <laughs> <laughs> uh, if any. Um, it's actually really hard to be homeless. Um, it takes all day, you know. So outside of Skid Row, and for those of you who you know aren't familiar with the numbers, um, Skid Row is synonymous with homelessness to such an extent that we talk about it almost as a euphemism where, you know, oh, they're on Skid Row, meaning they're on the down and outs. So when people think of LA and homelessness, they think of Skid Row. But the truth is, is that less than 10% of all people experiencing unsheltered homelessness in LA are not on Skid Row, but all the resources are concentrated on Skid Row. So outside of that, and we, we, uh, we ask this question of every single patient we see. On average, they eat one meal a day, um, but a lot of them eat two to three meals a week. And so they spend all day trying to find 
whatever way they can to get their food, to know where they're going to sleep tonight, trying to maintain their own safety. You know, for example, a lot, the number one drug of choice for the people we have that, that we serve is methamphetamine. And when you actually talk to people, most of them started using after they became homeless, because especially females. It is very dangerous to be homeless as a female. The rates of sexual assault are over 90% in a year, or sorry, in a lifetime, and over 30% in the last month. So they use meth to stay awake at night, and they walk the streets, and then they sleep during the day where there's more eyes around so that they essentially won't get assaulted. Uh, one of our friends, Harsh Mander, who is, uh, was actually no, nominated for a Nobel Prize this year, um, from India said that lack of empathy is usually a result of lack of imagination. And I think that's the biggest fault is that their lives are so different from ours that we can't even imagine what they're going through. And that lack of imagination leads to that lack of empathy. So that's what I would say to them is get to know the people and, um, and then they'll, they'll give you the solution. I think it is a lack of imaginations and lack of certain values and certain empathy. But I think a lot of times they choose not to think about it, right? Because if you really think about, as you said, very concretely, what a homeless individual goes through day to day, a day for them probably feels like a month to most, right? I can't even imagine surviving on the limited nutrition of three meals a week or a meal a day or for female individuals to stay awake and forfeit sleep, which I'm sure contributes to mental illness and a host of other symptoms. And for example, I want to share this with the listeners is speaking of imaginations, imagine we had a, a tough day at work, right? A really stressful day at work. You bicker with your boss. Things went wrong left and right. Nothing went right for you. At the end of the day, you have a shelter and a haven to go home to, that's your home. And then you can debrief, relax, do whatever you want, or not do anything you want. But then for these individuals that we're speaking about, they have no such safe shelter. Their reality is in the now, but then now is rooted in outside with no safety guarantees, no supply of water, no lights, nothing. And I think a lot of times it's really sad and very depressing to think about. And I'm sure a lot of people have their own hardships to deal with, so they choose not to think because they're like, oh, it's not my problem, right? But I do really think that they're a part of humanity and we can't just ignore because we have been ignoring for the past 40 years. Look at where that got us, nowhere. So um, you talked a lot about radical humility, right? Throughout this interview and also in numerous of your interviews, whether it's TED Talk, a couple interviews you've done with the news outlet. Um, how would you define what radical humility is? I would say it, it has to do with forgetting ourselves and our own bias and our own, it's kind of what we were just talking about, um, and just being ready to serve them. People who do street medicine, there's two kinds of different sides of the coin, right, that have to do with an arrogance. One is, you know, I'm the medical professional. I know all of the guidelines. If you don't follow the guidelines, then, you know, I'm going to force you to sign out against medical advice. You know, patient understands the risks, including death. And now I've absolved myself of any responsibility. 
Um, same thing with just the idea of people, you know, giving money is that, you know, I gave my money. You're telling me you're not done yet being homeless. You should be done. I gave, I gave my money without any, you know, concept of how much money it takes. Um, but then there's a, you know, more insidious kind of, of, uh, arrogance, which we fall into as street medicine providers where we get really upset if things aren't working out the way we want to. You know, we've been talking to them about stopping their drug use, taking the medications, and they just keep doing it. They just kept taking the drug. Or we've been trying to get them this treatment or that treatment. And, you know, or I told them to meet me here at 10 o'clock. They didn't come. And so it gets back to what we see as our role in all of this. And we have to remember that. And, and so you internalize it. I'm a crap doctor. I'm a crap PA. Um, or we, or we lay blame on them, but we have to understand that they have had this whole life of trauma before we've ever met them. And it would be very arrogant of us to think that we can swoop in as the hero and change it all right away within a few weeks. And so there's a humility in understanding our small role that we play in the great, you know, big story of their life. And so there's there's different things, you know, ways that 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 humility needs to be worked into the into the work. Yeah, that's awesome. I sense the in terms of the insidious arrogance or the insidious nature of helping profession because helping professionals aren't perfect. We're just humans who tend to born with certain characteristics which made us gravitate towards certain jobs that's filled with empathy. A lot of it's genetics and personality, of course. Another insidious thing that I think all helping professions are prone to is savior complex, right? When you think, oh, I'm the savior, I'm here with a job, with a calling, it's my job to lift them out of their low water, so to speak. Another thing that's insidious and dangerous is probably burnout, because especially for street medicine, you and your team is so immersive. It's all about engagement, radically, whatever it takes. How do you bet against burnout with such an important, but I'm sure exhausting and very, very challenging work? So burnout is important to talk about. And there's another part that a lot of times burnout is confused with moral injury. And the difference is that burnout places the burden on the person. You know, they just need to do more yoga. They just need to do more self-care and then everything would be fine. And actually street medicine people that that aren't doing this as a, there are some who do this as a job. They, you know, this is just what they do during the day. But a lot of this, this is our vocation. This is what we feel that we've, you know, are meant to be here for and to do. And we don't get burnt out really. There is a lot of work and you have to monitor that. And a protective mechanism against that is the community. Street medicine is a, is a small global community. There are street medicine programs all over the world. And uh, they're all very accessible to anybody who wants them. Um, you know, we, I've taken advantage of the street medicine Airbnb many times where I go to a, any city around the world and have a place to stay. And our house is the same way. So there's, you know, that aspect to it. And then there's the moral injury aspect to it, which I think is more common. Um, and that is... When somebody, it, it takes the burden away from the individual and places it on the dysfunctional system or the dysfunctional 
parts of society um, where we just feel hopeless and helpless to make any changes. That no matter how hard we push, uh, things just aren't working out the way that we hope that they work out. And or that you feel that you are somehow accomplice to to those sort of um, systemic horrors. And that's moral injury. And that's what I think we fall victim to more often. Um, but we do a lot of reflective practice uh, where we set aside time um, to talk about things as a team and really think through them and what we could have done better or, or worse. And usually, you know, we, we just keep coming back to love, don't we, Benoit? But I, I usually ask them, were you negligent? Did you ignore something? Were you not paying attention to the patient when what they were telling you? Did you not ask? Were you rushed? And if the answer is no, then he said, did you love them enough or did you withhold for some reason? And if the answer is no, then you need to have a clear conscience about that. Because things happen, they live on the streets, bad things are going to happen as long as they're on the streets, which is why they can't be, why we need to get them off the street. But in that examination, you might say, you know what, I was worried about this email that I got and I rushed that visit and wasn't paying attention. And in that case, then you need to learn from it. And we all make those mistakes. Yeah, I think it's very important that you have some sort of a system in place to bet against a common phenomenon, right? Because as you said, even if you know intellectually that, oh yeah, it's moral injuries, part of the profession, we all prone to it. And that's nature of the job. But as human nature, you still get affected by that, right? That's like the disconnection between cognitive knowledge and heart knowledge. Sometimes even if you know, like really know, you still fall prey. So I feel like having a system really important, right? So you can do systematically bet against that in your case, reflective practices. So in terms of hopelessness that you talked about uh, in your response, I think that naturally goes into the next question of cynicism. As we discussed offline, I am a former policymaker in Philadelphia who pivoted, who I, I guess you can call it called, enter my divine calling into the clinical field as a psychotherapist in training, because I realized a lot of the societal issues that I really cared about were byproducts and reflections of mental health issues or a lack of mental health attendance. So for you, Brett, I reckon it's hard to uphold hope every single day when you're seeing literally one of the most vulnerable and painful populations, period. But you're doing it every single day, every single day. And life is comprised of a repeat. And I reckon seeing that hopelessness, seeing this bleak situations every day takes a toll on you. So how do you bet against and fight against the cynicism? Because you sound a lot more hopeful than I am. So I'm trying to uh, learn from you as well. But how do you fight against that? Yeah, well, I guess a few things. One, we're not called, we don't see ourselves as being called to take care of 66,000 people. We see ourselves to being called to take care of the one in front of us, and then another one, and then another one. And in each one, there are victories. Some of it may mean that they have a job and a house now. And some of it may mean that they knew somebody cared about them when they died. And um, a lot of times we'll go back to those three motivators that I mentioned earlier, 
the duty, justice, love, and apply it to a situation that you feel hopeless about. For example, I was giving a training at at uh, another organization, and they were just heartbroken because one of the patients they lo- they really loved so much died the day before, um, essentially drank himself to death, and they got him housing or they got him housing voucher, but he never moved into housing. Um, he was a veteran, and um, they had a messages on their phone that went like this. You know, F you, where's my effing housing? You know, you said you were doing this and that. I love you, bye. And when he died, he actually listed the occupational therapist as his next of kin. And so from a duty standpoint, it was a complete failure. You know, we were in charge of taking care of his alcohol use disorder and he drank himself to death. There's no greater failure than the patient dying of the exact thing you were supposed to be caring for them. From a justice standpoint, a complete failure. He deserved housing. He was a veteran and was approved for housing. So he definitely deserved it. We just never got him moved in. But from a love standpoint, it was a complete success. Imagine filling out that paperwork and it asks you next of kin and you can't think of one person who would care if you died, but they were able to gift that to him, that he knew that this OT would care if something happened to him. And so he died with that. Um, so from a love standpoint, it was a success. So sometimes we have to go back to those and reframe how we're viewing a success and a failure um, for those individuals we care for. There are other things, you know, from a population standpoint that we think about, but focus on the individual because those are the ones that matter yeah i feel that's a really important and powerful strategy because not not just a strategy but approach what i mean by that is as you know the american political landscape is burning down the world is on fire every single day you turn on the news you just you're like ah why did i turn on the news a friend of mine dave he just became elected as a local politician in philadelphia in fishtown area and i asked him the same question as a politician, how do you stay hopeful in the most bleak profession as a politics, which is what I got jaded for? And he said, Benoit, when the world is burning down, you have to claim your power locally. Focus on the local issues. Forget about the national, focus on the local. That's how you get your power back. And I sense the same ethos in what you just said. It's not about the 66,000. It's not about the global homelessness. It's about one patient, one human that's across from me. And what can I do about that? I want to ask you a question in, about an interview you did last year with KCRW. So in the interview last year, you shared in LA, 1,300 people died on the streets. That's not just a number for me. Some of them were my friends and patients. In terms of, A, I'm really, I'm, I can't even imagine, because of course, physicians and a lot of helping professions, nurses deal with secondary trauma right? Or exposure trauma, uh, vicarious trauma through exposure. So I'm sure you also have a lot of difficulties emotionally to deal with. But in terms of logistically, or even emotionally, wherever you want to take them, what are some of the biggest barriers you and your team have encountered? By the way, just as an aside, that number is now 2000. So the barriers to doing street medicine are, a lot of them are kind of inherent to them being on the street. 
where th- their lives are just very chaotic and we're kind of trying to follow them around town. That's, and they have very little resources. Um, so that's a small percentage of the barriers. The larger barriers are systemic and societal, where we feel like we are constantly fighting a system that doesn't recognize them as existing. So, for example, I mentioned street medicine getting reimbursed. So some of the major things that we're dealing with from a just purely healthcare standpoint is that when you seek reimbursement for a visit, you bill the what you did um, medically and the place where you did it, the place of service code. There is no place of service for the street. There's, you know, clinic, RV, homeless shelter, campground, cruise ship, all kinds of places. But there's not one for the street, for under the bridge, for behind the dumpster and stuff. So, so depending on your risk tolerance, some people, about 25% of street medicine programs have tried to bill, but the rest of them aren't even trying to. And so, by not recognizing the street and the people who live on the street as existing, then we're not recognizing their right to life and the street medicine that they rely on to survive. And there's all kinds of other things that just stem from that, that that uh, their reality is not recognized. Um, a- another example of what we're working through is that uh, managed care. So what happens is when you get Medi-Cal or health insurance, you get assigned to a insurance company, and then they assign you to a primary care doctor. But if you're living on the street and you can't access that primary care doctor, you're not able to get that care. And every and they're kind of like the gatekeeper. So things go through them, specialty referrals, wheelchairs, things, you know, all have to be done through the primary care doctor. So when we see them, we can't bill and we can't access their benefits. So we're working to make it that Stream medicine providers can get paid, not just the PCP who's getting paid to do nothing, because they're not seeing them, we are, and that we can access their benefits. So in California, we're working towards that. We seem to be very close to getting that, but uh, nothing is nothing in the rest of the country is coming close to that. Yeah, uh, I just want to take a moment and just honor the new figure of 2000 death, since like and once again, it's not pleasant to imagine the death of 2,000 individual human beings who look like us, who are make up of the same genetic makeup as we are, right? But 2,000 is a staggering high number. And as you said, the interview was pretty recent. So I just want to take a moment and honor that. And yeah, you talked about the barriers in terms of, I guess, connecting the patients to the care providers. Uh, would you say the whole billing situations or insurance is part of the barriers? Because as as insiders, as you know, insurance is a behemoth in medical. And a lot of the systematic issues that's, I guess, weighing down healthcare as a whole is insurance. And of course, your patients' demographics deal with Medicare and governmental insurance. But do you have any challenges dealing with insurance issues? So there was a, a bill that we were involved with called AB 369, the Street Medicine Act, which was introduced by Senator Kamlager, who has been just an amazing advocate for our work. And the bill was designed to fix some of those things. It was eventually vetoed by the governor, but it passed through the 
Senate and the House unanimously. But when the governor vetoed it, he said, you know, they have some really good points. Let's work through those points. There was not, there were some things in the bill that, that he didn't like, that the governor didn't like, but he didn't oppose the foundational piece of it. And so we've been working with the state, with Department of Healthcare Services, DHCS, on these things. And I have to say that they have been such a pleasure to work with. <laughs> I know, I don't know how many people would say that the state has been a pleasure to work with, but I've really enjoyed it. We have a, we have like a, a group that's advising them and, um, I feel like we're making progress. We're not there yet. Uh, we have a long way to go, but the purpose and the goals of the group, we share common values in that we want the people living, you know, who are experiencing homelessness to get care. We share that and we're willing to do new things in the system, not just say, well, this is the system. If, you know, figure out a way to fit them into it. That's not the approach. And so even though we have a long way to go, we've had some wins, collective wins, not just wins for street medicine providers, but a long way to go in that way. Um, and part of that recognition is again going back to recognizing their reality and that as long as they're on the street, we have to create a system around them. So you let we talk about letting the streets build the program, that the second I start to build it, it's going to be a huge embarrassing failure. And so that's what we're trying to do. Once again, I admire your hopefulness and your optimism. As you said, it's not, especially in 2022, I haven't heard anyone saying that, oh, it's a pleasant to work with the government. So that's definitely very refreshing to hear on so many levels. But it is helpful, though, because I think when you view government, like the government as this totalistic, this totality, people are like, oh, no, it's the government. It's overwhelming. But I think what you're doing is you're dissecting and distilling into the individual components of individual decision makers who are comprised of the government. In that sense, I think it makes your work a lot more manageable because it's not the government, but it's like, oh, these are other people like me who happen to be in a positions of power who happen to could influence policies in a certain direction. And I think that's very, very useful, especially in this current burning political climate. That is exactly right is that people talk about the system as if it's this behemoth that we can't influence, but the system was created by and led with people. And, and a lot of times, just like we try and empower the people we're serving to make changes in their lives, you know, maybe they're using heroin or, or crack or something, we empower them, that they have influence over this. So too, we have to empower our leaders that like you are, you actually can influence the system. If you think the system is bad, you have the power to make a decision. And so the, the, we can change the system, but the people in charge have to feel like they have the power to do so. And, uh, and sometimes, sometimes it can be a little bit of a, and this has not been my experience with these people, obviously, because I, you know, we are making headway, but sometimes it can be a cop out for a leader to say, Oh, this, that's just the system, um, and feel powerless to change it. Uh, obviously, it's not true in all cases, but um, we can't say that it doesn't exist. Yeah, absolutely. I just want to echo that and then put that on the messaging board, is that for anyone listening who want to either join social work, be a clinician, part of the street medicine like Brad's doing, or any lane of work, especially on a political level, 
don't get too hopeless because it's not a behemoth. It's another person like we are who took them years to get there. And there's always prospect for change internally. So I just want to, I'm saying that more for myself so I, so I can become more optimistic too. But I do think it's really, really important. Um, I want to take a soft pivot, Brett, into the addiction side, right? Which is what you alluded to, whether they're using substance like heroin or crack, it comes down to the root cause of addiction. And I know in your TED talk, you talked a lot about firefighters. They don't look at the surface. They try to address a root cause. And to my understanding and to literature, the science states that there are many root causes, but one of the most fundamental and the most difficult root causes to affect and work through is their addiction, right? And of course, that creates mental illness and whole other domains. But I didn't know this, but I realized recently that in America, because we're talking, we're contextualizing the United States, which is our experiences, there are still a lot of people debating that addiction is an actual a disease. It's a neurobiological disease. People still view, many still view addiction through the lens of moral issues which is a false, it's a fallacy, right? Uh, but can you explain a little bit more about the addiction science side? Of course, it's a very, very vast topic. So take it as you wish, but maybe more pertaining to the homelessness population. To say addiction is a choice, I mean, who would choose that? That just, it just, you know, rationally doesn't make sense that anybody would choose that. So something must have started them on that. You know, whether they had untreated mental illness, you know, for whatever reason, couldn't get access or diagnosed for those things, or there was trauma that they, they experienced in their life and were looking for something to kind of ease that pain. And we all do that. We all look for ways to be consoled when we're in pain. Honestly, I've even had patients whose parents, I, I had one patient I can think of who told me that they were injected with heroin at 12 years old by their mom. Um, because they were, they had a really bad day at school and were depressed and mom thought it'd make them feel better. Jim Weathers, who's one of my best friends and mentors, says there's as many paths to the street as there are people on the street. And so you really can't think about addiction and individuals assign, you know, saint versus sinner status to anybody, um, without knowing their particular story. Uh, I mean, earlier in the conversation, we talked about People who started simply to stay awake so that they weren't raped. And it's it's really hard to make a moral judgment on that. What would you do if you knew, because it's happened, not a risk, but a guarantee that if you slept, you would be raped or try the methamphetamine? Which would you pick? That's a hard decision. I feel like this is the reason why America is so polarized now, because we don't choose to engage in these dialogues. Right, I, I, I created a long-form conversation very intentionally, even though the algorithm doesn't always prefer and uphold two-hour conversations. And people love 30-minute clips, three-minute headliners. But even with politicians, like whether you're a fan of Trump or not, whether you're a fan of Obama or not, we've only have access to a, a single domain of the curated persona. Unless you talk to them in person, you observe their body language, their mannerism, their eye contact. You don't know who they are. You have doesn't matter, like fill in the blank with any public figures. Even you, Brett, or myself or anyone, unless you actually engage in in-person conversations, you feel that chemistry, 
you don't know who they are. And that's why labeling culture, canceling culture can be toxic, right? And so that's something that I just want to highlight again is we don't know what we don't know. And it's best not to assume ever in whatever the context that may be. Um, speaking of your mentor and your best friends, I know in your our quality process, you attributed a lot of the things and what allowed you to be in your current position, very helpful and very important position to be in. You attributed that to having a perfect mix of mentors, teachers, and training. Uh, as the director now yourself, it is your job to bestow and instill the important philosophy and lessons and toolkits to the next generations, to your own team, to your students that you teach at Family Medicine and so on. What does mentorship mean to you? Well, you know, I'm older than I was before. Some people, <laughs> you know, <laughs> some people still don't think I'm old, but I guarantee I'm older than I was before. So you realize how little you can actually do as you've been trying for so many years. And that, you know, this whole idea of like a, you know, self-made man, pick yourself out of bootstraps and get the job done. It doesn't exist. We all function in society. We all rely on each other from, you know, whatever meal you're going to eat for lunch to the home you're going to sleep in tonight. You didn't kill the animal. You didn't build the house. You know, maybe you did part of it, maybe you didn't, but um, we all rely on each other. And the same thing in street medicine. I work as part of a team. We have many different people on our team. We have people with lived expertise in homelessness. We have different ways of approaching a similar problem, um, different backgrounds, and they all contribute to everything being better. And there's the micro level of that in, in our teams, but then there's, you know, the city and the county and the state and, and, and so on. So they're constantly teaching me. I'm constantly teaching them. And hopefully we can all be better for the people that we're trying to serve. So if I didn't have teachers, I wouldn't be nearly to where I am now. And, you know, hopefully we can all say that with honesty about ourselves. And if I would have listened, to things people were trying to teach me, I would have also be farther along. But without those little curves or detours you take, the lessons, the pain teachers, as I call them, don't get ingrained as much. So it's all part of the process. But yeah, mentorship is so important. The uh, yeah, when I hear anyone, especially public figures or people on a who are put on a certain pedestal, or anytime they're like, "Oh, I'm self-made." I was like, as you said, Brett, no one is self-made unless you conjure up your own sperm and egg. No one's self-made, <laughs> literally on the simplest level, right? So I think it's really important for us to like attribute and recognize where we came from and that we are not this egotistical, amazing, perfect being. Like, no, it's even if you don't have a lot of privileges and you're like, no, I came from the bottom up. I urge you to think twice and I'm sure your ancestors, those who came before you, paved the way for you in a very fundamental level. So I think that's a really important message to talk about. Let's go down to this more interpersonal level since we're talking about mentorship, influences. Some of the most important and pivotal influences that we have is our parenting and our family dynamics, right? And of course, we started this conversation with you working out in the morning, having the best physique I've seen as a guest so far. Um, you talked about your family dynamic was a mix of discipline and freedom. And I feel like that's a very important balance to have in life. 
but also in profession, especially in what you do as a stream medicine provider, because you, you, you need the rigidity sometimes. You need the structure to get things done, but you also have to have a certain level of freedom to allow your team members to lean into their own creativity, to lean into their own intuition and everything in between. So can you elaborate more on what discipline and freedom mean to you? And feel free to pull whatever strings you feel called to. Yeah. So discipline, and th and that was that's a very good characteristic, of, or you know, of the way that I was raised. But discipline means that you have these foundational values, foundational beliefs, and that 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 remains your touchstone to come back to in making any decision, um, if you need to come back there. And then it also means that. Um, you don't work on whims. So there's not every day that I feel the best I've ever felt, that I can't wait to do every single thing that my job entails. Sometimes I do things that I don't want to do. And I think we all do things that we don't want to do and we do them anyway. And discipline is what gives you that ability to do those things. And the more discipline you have, the more you'll be able to do things that you don't want to do, but you have to do. If you have less discipline, then you'll procrastinate, you won't do this, you won't do that, and you'll be incomplete. So since you mentioned my my physique, it's like a half rep. If you do a half <laughs> rep, you get half the development. And so discipline makes you do a full rep to get full development. But then you need the freedom and the creativity that are not so structured. Because life is not going to do that. That's not how life works. There are, as you mentioned, nobody is self-made. So there are environmental influences, there are other people around you and, and other influences, environmental, spiritual, you know, intellectual, societal, things in your community that make it that you don't function alone in your discipline. So you have to have the creativity and the freedom to allow people to express themselves, you to express yourselves, honoring their diversity. Um, both in, in, in all the different forms that diversity take to enhance everything you're doing. It's not just in stream medicine, but in anything in life. Yeah, I think uh, diversity of thoughts is really important, right? That's how you truly create a sustainable and societal impact is when you lean on to other discipline, like a true multidisciplinary approach, rather than the subsystem reductionistic thinking of only talk to physicians, only talk to nurses, only talk to civil engineers, but rather it's like, no, let's talk to the whole system, like system thinking. I think that's the only way to create a sustainable change because America or capitalistic society is very good at specialized subsystem thinking. That's why we're dealing with a lot of these unforeseeable emergent properties and a lot of these issues society on every single level. That's really important. So I want to talk about diversity of thoughts and maybe intellectual diversity. So as a professor yourself, Brad, have you noticed any trends or differences between the new students, the new cohort of students coming in? Like, are they more passionate? Are they more driven? Or are they more hesitant about street medicines? Or, you know, it's, it's a, once again, it's a very wide question, but how do you try to cultivate a diversity of thoughts in your own classrooms because you're a clinician educator as well. So much more passionate, so much more driven, so much more in tune to diversity than I was. You know, when I was going through training, we didn't even talk about social de determinants of health. 
it just wasn't part of it. But I think now almost everybody talks about it. It's in the curriculum somewhere. But but where we're moving to, where we've moved to at USC in the PA program and our, and our working on the medical school and such, not just USC, you know, everywhere what's happening is that there's a recognition that there are social determinants of health, and but, but we still have this core curriculum of really important things. And then we have these special population lectures where we learn about homelessness and LGBTQ and, you know, and so on um, outside of the core curriculum. The term we're using, is, we call it use piece. So it's underserved equity-based primary care education. So the idea is that you can't separate people from their environment. And so when we're teaching about social determinants of health, it's interwoven into the whole curriculum, into the core curriculum. So when we teach about hypertension, for example, um, we teach about how you treat hypertension differently for somebody experiencing unsheltered homelessness. You know, we talk about, you know, getting off the homeless topic, but when you're giving materials on, you know, proper diet and nutrition and you have somebody who is from another country and doesn't eat hamburgers, don't tell them to avoid eating hamburgers. Because they don't eat it, so we're, it's getting woven into the baked into the curriculum, and I think that's how we need to move, because that's how the students are. That's really what they're demanding of us. They're demanding much more of us, because they're coming with, with that sort of thought process, and so we need to keep up with them. Yeah, it's awesome. It's like honoring the、uh, empty canvas mentality, because you do know that a lot of students come with maybe less biases in a lot of cases because they don't know as much. Um, because I feel like ignorance comes with lack of biases in some senses, but in some senses, ignorance is associated with a lot of biases. Can you、um, contextualize and define what social determinants of health is for the listeners who are not in the clinical field? Yeah, so social determinants of health are environmental influences on you that have a big impact on your health. So it could be anything from Uh, your education level, race,、uh, air quality that you grew up in—you、um, know—all of these other things that that we wouldn't typically think of as as health-related. Like, you know, it's not your blood pressure, but there's actually data to show convincingly that that has a greater influence on our health than the things than say like I would as a PA. Yeah. So,、uh, to another way to explain that is. Of course, genetics are the sets of genetics that we're given, but epigenetics is like a change of DNA expressions based on environmental feedback and such. But it's like basically,、uh, in layman's terms, nature and nurture. It's funny people always ask, "Oh, is it nature or nurture?" It's like, no, it's always nature and nurture. Why is it always A or B? Like America is really good at picking one over. It's like, why can't we have both? That's nuances, right? This is a personal curiosity. It, it may not land anywhere. If it doesn't, I take full ownership. With your pretty wide and diverse background, right? You're a director of a program, so there's a lot of mezzo and logistical funding, politics you have to deal with, navigations, and you know all that stuff. Then there is a clinician educator as a professor. It's about instillment, right? Empowering the next generations with toolkits and knowledge, and as a street medicine provider yourself, about actually working on the field. With those three or more identities, what gives you、uh, the most joy and fun? Like, how would you view those identities separately? It's funny. I've never separated them out like that.、Uh, it it's always just been a part of my role and what I do.、Um, 
and it's all to the same end. It's all just different ways that I can serve the people. So, you know, sometimes it means being under the bridge with them and, and dressing their wound. And other times, and this can happen in the same day, you find yourself in a boardroom talking to, you know, a CEO or, you know, testifying in front of Congress or something like that. But it's all really the same thing. And the message is the same to Congress as to my daughter's, you know, sixth grade class at school. It's the same message. Being a witness is really part of being a street medicine provider, is that when the people give you the privilege of walking with them on this journey, you see things that you can't unsee. And in seeing those things, you become a witness. And as a witness, it's your duty to go back and report to people who couldn't be under the bridge with you what you saw. And a lot of times when I see, you know, on the mezzo level, that you, you, you come out of a meeting and you're like, they just don't understand. And they don't understand because they haven't been under there with you and they really can't. You don't bring everybody under the bridge with you. But it's your responsibility to paint a vivid picture for them of what it's like. And um, so it's all part of the same thing for me. Yeah, that's a, that's a great answer. Yeah, because I feel like when you've done this for 16 plus years, I'm sure a lot of your identities morphed into one. And as you said, you're just operating from the lens of serving people. Um, so speaking of serving people, Brett, the way you ended your TED Talk in 2020 is you talked about you urged, right? It was very actionable. You urged the, the TED Talk attendants at the time and viewers and listeners one May. You talked about we as a society, we must move past the fear-based reaction into compassion and love-based reaction. Once again, it's a very, very high level and loaded question and because it's, it's almost asking you to how can we change the societal reaction to a very difficult thing, but how can we move past fear into this place of compassion? You have to get to know people and, and I, people don't want that. They want an easy answer. It's much easier to agreed to raise your taxes a quarter of a of a you know penny than it is to actually get to know somebody so you know maybe when you're getting off the highway or you're getting your coffee there's probably somebody experiencing homelessness if you live in LA that's around there that you see probably every day so that's how you can start is as many people there are, as are on the street in LA there's more people in housing and so if each of us who have a home could get to know one person on the street, what their name is, what they need, even if you don't have to get them housing, but maybe you can share a donut every Tuesday. I mean, just listen to them. And that's how you'll get over the fear is that it's not this, you know, scary person ready to jump, you know, hopped up on drugs and mentally ill, ready to jump out of the bushes and get you. It's, you know, Edna. Who, who stays behind the 7-Eleven that I get my coffee at every day. And then when, the, when people come in and they clear her encampment, they throw her stuff away, um, it's not the garbage that got kicked out, it's Edna that got kicked out. Um, and then you wonder where she went and if she's okay. And, and that's how you get over the fear. Um, when I started in Pennsylvania, Nobody was really, nobody was going to the streets. In, in LA, when I started, there was already a lot of outreach. 
So the idea that there would be more outreach, but this time medical, wasn't that crazy of an idea. Um, but in Pennsylvania, it was a crazy, crazy idea. They thought it was so dangerous. They wouldn't let students go with me. They wouldn't actually, they let PA students come, not medical students. The medical students, they was too scary. Their parents would never let them go. You know, they just thought they were such monsters out there. And I've been doing this for 16 years. I've never been scared. I've never felt threatened. And as far as we know, we did polls within the Street Medicine Institute. And these are hundreds of street medicine providers with, you know, some with more experience than others. And nobody has been injured doing street medicine. And that really, nobody has been sued either, by the way. But that, that uh, defies the odds. You know, if you've ever worked in an ER, in a clinic, you've probably either been threatened, you know, threatened yourself or have seen, you know, a colleague get something thrown at them or punched or so it happens all the time. I think when we don't have a direct exposure, or a, a contextualized story, we, our brains are really good at filling in the missing gap with fiction. I think uh, humans are great fiction writers and their best writing fictions about themselves, about the things they don't know best. I wish humans can just leave those gaps as they are to prompt more questions, more curiosity, to ask more questions, to fill in the gap. We're like, nope, we're very linear, most of us. So we're like, oh, that's what could have happened. So this must have what happens. Like, no, leave the gap and ask one more question, which is what the nuance is. And I do think that life and reality is in the nuances, uh, which is why it's really, really important. So um, speaking of nuances, um, in the TED, TED Talk again, I'm sorry referencing so much TED Talk. That's like the most comprehensive and most recent media appearance you've done. But in the TED Talk, you talked about people, even people who want to help out this population. They often focus on material poverty. But an idea that you introduced in the TED Talk is spiritual poverty. So material poverty versus spiritual poverty. Could you elaborate more? Yeah. So material poverty is much easier to solve. If you're hungry, I can give you a sandwich. If you're homeless, I can give you a home or a house. Spiritual poverty is much, much harder. It's that long loneliness of homelessness that uh, you never know when it's going to end, where you feel unwanted, unloved, like you're nobody to nobody. And that takes a lot more to fix, if it can be fixed. Um, it takes overcoming those fears. Uh, where, you know, even if you're scared, you think that there are, you know, crazy people ready to jump out the woods and get you, you can still give materially to them. But you can't come anywhere close to touching the spiritual poverty that they experience that is much scarier. Jack Prager is one of kind of our, the founders of the street medicine movement. Um, and he, he, he's retired now, but he did most of the, uh, uh, leprosy clinics with Mother Teresa in Calcutta. And I asked him, what's the difference between, you know, homelessness and what you experienced in Calcutta and in the United States, um, you know, in the slums of Calcutta? And he said, it's way worse in the United States. In the slums, there's there are many, many generations there. The families are together intact. The communities are together. And even though visually it looks the same, that the level of material poverty is similar and looks the same, they don't have the same type of spiritual poverty. 
that the people experiencing homelessness in the United States have, and that's what makes it much worse. For American listeners who don't understand what the slums and the deep poverty look like in India and other regions of the world, I'd urge you just go to YouTube and look up a few videos so you have a more vivid portrayal of what Brad is talking about. But I do view humans as spiritual beings, and that's why I do. I understand that when your spirit is broken, that's probably the most devastating things that could happen to you, in addition to physical disabilities, mental disabilities. It's when your spirit is being crushed and not recognized by other humans that look just like you. I subscribe to the healing power of stories because I think humans are storytellers and I do think that storytelling is a prehistoric thing that's embedded in our DNA. If you look at Homo sapiens, like cave paintings, right? We've, we've been telling stories for eons, generations and generations. And stories are powerful because I think stories give one, the ability to package facts and this important knowledge in a very receptive form so people receive them well. Otherwise, if it's not packaged well, there's no point to facts or numbers because that's why storytelling is the bridge. Could you share some, one of the most impactful moments or maybe stories that you've experienced with your 16 years of work? I know you shared a story about Craig teaching you about the unconditional nature of love. Right, for someone that doesn't share a blood bond, so to speak. Uh, any other stories that come up that could help the listeners to portray a more humanistic side of the population you, you work and serve? My friend Scott, who really was one of the people that drove us into the street in the first place. Um, actually, drove us into education, too, and, and really valuing the people's input into education. And, the, and, and now we have programs, we call it the Trojan Trainer Program, which we can talk about if you want, but it basically recognizes the, the patient as the trainer training the student how to care for them. So he had a uh, intellectual disability. He was in his early 40s, but intellectually was probably six or seven. So from the education standpoint, same guy, but he had just such a profound influence on us. Um, he came up and had one high blood pressure reading. And you can't diagnose high blood pressure off one reading, but he had one high reading and for the next two years came every week to get his blood pressure checked and it was always normal. And we realized he had come every single week for this blood pressure and didn't need to come anymore. So I talked to Corinne, my wife, who does this work too, said, did anybody tell Scott he doesn't need to come every week? And we were like, no, we ne nobody ever told him. So he had a special relationship with Corinne. So Corinne told him, you don't need to come every week. And he said, well, if I don't come, who's going to teach the students how to take blood pressure? <laughs> and we were like, you know, Scott, you're right. Who's going to teach them how to take a blood pressure if you're not here? And so he kept coming. And we and that evolved into really valuing their, their contribution to the students' education. And now they have, you know, at USC, they're, they are the trainers, Trojan trainers, training students. So that's part of it. But what drove us out onto the street that I think a lot of people don't recognize because they don't follow them is that, he, so he was staying in a rescue mission and um, it was against the rules, but he had a pornographic magazine and the magazine was found and he was kicked out of the mission in late January in Pennsylvania. 
and it's cold. Um, and given his intellectual disability, we didn't think he would be able to survive, would probably freeze to death um, on the streets. And we were worried about him. And it's a good lesson to make sure that the consequences match what the offense was. I don't know if freezing to death matched the pornographic magazine thing, but um, that's you know a separate issue. But so we were worried for him and we went looking for him because we knew what other medical issues he had and th didn't think he would survive in the cold or with the other things outside. And we found him outside with others who, you know, under this bridge, basically not far from there, with other people experiencing unsheltered homelessness who took him in. And he was doing just fine. You know, they were around the campfire. They made sure that he was clothed properly, that he knew how to take care of a tent, take, you know, gave him food and did all those things um, compared to where he was before. And that time was really some of the most beautiful time. You know, we weren't calling it street medicine. I didn't even know street medicine existed at the time. Um, there was nothing official about what we were doing, but just spending the moments listening to their stories and getting to them, getting to know them as people. Um, was extremely valuable. And they're really what started the street medicine program in Lehigh Valley. I deeply respect your ability to call them your friends, your mentors, right? It's a little bit different, I guess, as a mental health clinicians, we can't have personal association with our patients and clients um, for ethical reasons and for their sake. Uh, but for you, I really respect from afar your ability to actually name them as your friends, name them as your mentor, because I think it's through naming the experience, we can actually recognize the experience. So I just want to highlight that because I do think that's really amazing. Were those moments sort of like the catalyzing experience for you in terms of when you first decided to going against everyone saying like, oh, bro, you're crazy. Don't do that. What? You're going to go out to the streets, provide medical care? No way. Like what catalyzed your decision to say, you know what? This is a needed area. No one else is talking about it. I need to be the vanguard of this movement, at least in Ellentown, PA. What was that like? Well, you didn't, just like you said, you don't know what you don't know. And so we thought we were taking care of the people that needed it the most at the shelters. And we had, we had two shelter-based clinics. And then there was this whole other population that nobody really knew about, that we weren't coming anywhere close to touching, and they were way sicker. So, you know, again, the role as a witness is I found them they weren't lost necessarily, they were pushed out of society. And so I had to come back and tell them about it and try and get everybody else to see what I was seeing. Um, and to their credit, they did. And have, you know, the program at in the Lehigh Valley is, is huge right now. And, you know, in talking to their, to some of their, they feel like they're meeting the need in that area. I think they could end homelessness there if they wanted to. That's outside of what street medicine does, who takes care of the health care for the people experiencing homelessness. So um, those are two different issues. But yeah, they, you know, they very much started that program. They drove us outside. Without going outside, you can't do street medicine. Yeah, it's like the saying in mental health that clients are the experts of their lives. Right. We might be experts in certain domains of knowledge and subjects, but nobody knows their needs more than themselves. 
similar to the idea that let a child lead with their curiosity, because children are the most curious creatures, not creatures, but people. But I think likewise, uh, whether it's your patients, your clients, or my clients, I think always they know what they need at that moment way more than all these external lens and all these people coming from the outside. So I think that's really, really, really important. Um, yeah, Brett. So we're definitely coming to the end of the episode, and. This is such a really important topic, and once again, I don't think a lot of people are talking about this for a multitude of reasons. Maybe it's too bleak, it's too big for them to grasp. Maybe they're dealing with their own hardships in their own rights because suffering is part of life for everyone. Um, do you have before I roll out the red carpet to share where could people connect with you to learn more about you, right? And before I hit you uh, with the discovery questions, how I usually end the show with. Do you have any parting message for people who might have piqued their interest? They're like, "Oh wow, this is a really, really important and big societal issue I never thought about, or I chose not to think about." But now they're motivated, inspired by your optimism, by your own experience, and the powerful stories you've shared. Because these aren't just words; these are real life experiences of real life humans that Brad had served and worked with. Uh, do you have any parting message for the listeners? Taking this story to, of that first patient further um, will lead to that message. So, like I said, we we didn't know what we were doing was street medicine, and it wasn't. It was okay. It wasn't great. And I found, so I went online to see who else was doing this work, and found Jim Withers and the Street Medicine Institute, and they taught me how to do this work the right way. They taught me the values and philosophy that. Quite honestly, is the only you know street medicine is a lot of things. It's a value and philosophy model. It's a healthcare delivery model. But without those values, it's not going to work the same. So they taught me that. And、um, the institute now is is global with many many members.、Um, and so my if this is something that interests you and you think street medicine should expand to wherever your city is, I've had great mentors and. We are, as I mentioned, a, a small global family. So feel free to reach out to us, and we'll do what we can to help. Awesome, awesome.、Um, and that leads to the discover more questions, and then I'll roll out the red carpet so people can connect with you farther offline.、Uh, it's twofold. First thing is after this very insightful and very nuanced and important conversation on the show, what's an area in your life, Brett, that you want to discover more about? And the second fold of that question is: What is an area in the listener's life, in addition to、uh, individuals suffering with homelessness, street medicine? What's an area in our listener's life that you like to encourage or even challenge to discover more about after this insightful conversation with you? Yeah, I would like to discover more about executive dysfunction and people experiencing homelessness. So, you know, for example, we have there are things that impact executive function. Which is things like planning and prioritizing,、um, emotional control, those types of things on how we think. And people experiencing homelessness have much higher rates of things that impact their executive function, like traumatic brain injury, mental illness, drug use, you know,、uh, intellectual disabilities. And when we think of people experiencing homelessness, we think of Mental health and drugs, which only account for less than fifty percent. So, what about the rest of them? 
What is the impact on all those things and the rest of it? And it's so important because if we can show, if we show, which we will be able to see that there's a high level of executive dysfunction, it changes the narrative from they won't do this and they won't do that till actually they can't. And if they can't, we have to change programming and how you qualify for things if we want to help them. So that's what I want to learn more about. For the listener, I would say, learn more about the people. You know, if you could, we talked about how to calm some of those fears that are, that own us and own our actions, um, is to just find one. Remember, there's more housed folks than unhoused folks. Just find one that you see every day and try and connect with them more than once. I think it's it's like the idea of one for all and all for one. I think by serving one and connecting with one, it opens the poor way and the gateways for many. But I think um, we do have to start somewhere because as we started this conversations, doing nothing and ignoring and saying not in my backyard, not in my house, literally will not get us anywhere. How do we knew that? Look at the history, right? And of course, we're just the vehicles for information and resources. And of course, Brett is an expert on this field. But the whole point of this show is that you can do more discovering more, do more curiosity calls on yourself, uh, by yourself after you're inspired by this conversation. And speaking of connecting, uh, where could, this is where I roll out the red carpet for you, Brett. Where can the listeners connect with you? Uh, maybe you have any exciting projects on the horizon. Maybe you need some interns. Maybe you need to expand your team effort. Uh, where could people connect with you offline? Um, so feel free to email me, uh, brett.feldman at med.usc.edu. If you just search Brett Feldman USC, it comes up, it's public. I'm also through the Street Medicine Institute, streetmedicine.org. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I'm excited about coming out pretty soon is uh, we're doing a landscape analysis on street medicine in California um, with the California Healthcare Foundation. So we can really see what's happening in the world of street medicine, at least in California. And that will inform a lot of things, um, both on scope of practice and, you know, what more can we do on the street to policy decisions. Awesome. Awesome. And yeah, as always, uh, to all the listeners, uh, the YouTube analytics shows that uh, most of you guys, 65% of you guys aren't subscribed and the video always goes live on Sundays and the audio platforms will be available on Mondays. So if you're watching, please hit the subscribe button to like and share it with a friend. If you're listening, please share this with your friends as well. That's how to motivate me to keep doing these conversations for free without monetizing it for the listeners, because I do think that there's so much value being added into these conversations and many. Um, so if you can like, subscribe and share, that'll be much appreciated and really help the channel grow. And to you, Brad, as always, I really appreciate you from hopping on to these conversations. I was really excited to learn more about this because homelessness is an area I didn't know too much about. Um, and I do want to learn more about that, but it's an internal battle versus my cynicism. And I was like, oh man, it's just so much water. There's so much complexity and depth. And I think I'm burdened by my little knowledge I do have and the little exposure I do have since ignorance is not an armor I can put on. Because as you said, once you see something, you cannot unsee it. It's just so visceral and so powerful. So I for sure will try to connect with the uh, uh, individual experience with homelessness around the gym I, I live around in downtown LA. And hopefully I could also start 
make incremental connections with these individuals uh, myself so to model this behavior. Um, but as always, yeah, I really appreciate your generosity and your time. Hopefully listeners took away a lot of valuable information and call to action items from your experience and your stories. And lastly, to all the listeners, uh, appreciate you. Thank you for always hopping on this train of Discover More. And as always, I hope that you can always answer and respond to your curiosity call because you don't know where that curiosity will lead you next. And as always, thank you for hopping on and see you again next time.